probably all the mistakes I've made that I feel uh, could have been done better were the ones where I didn't pull back and let the emotions take over. The ones that I did make uh, where I was in control but made it because of lack of information or uh, a lack of understanding, I don't feel bad about because those were mistakes I learned from. So therefore the outcome of, of making mistakes um, conditions the, the, the ability for you to go and make more uh, and that's where you learn. You need to get out of your comfort zone because that's where you grow and if you're not comfortable being out of your comfort zone then you're not going to grow. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Grassy Hopper podcast. My name is Yasmin. I'm the founder of the Grassy Hopper and the Theobroma raw chocolate shop and our latest venture, Sanya Holistic Center. Today's episode is going to be a different aspect of health to what we've spoken about so far, a very classic exercise. <laughs> So today I'm joined by Dave, who's going to help me co-host. Dave was the first guest of our podcast, and he's a traveler, blogger, and also, I think I can describe you as an endurance athlete. He casually ran a half marathon before breakfast this morning. So, <laughs> And today we're going to be interviewing Nathan Faruja, who is an entrepreneur, was the CEO of Inspire Foundation for 14 years, which is an NGO that helps uh, disabled uh, support disabled people. And he's also quite a serial entrepreneur himself. I was looking at your Facebook page yesterday and there was quite a long list of <laughs> things uh, that you're doing. Um, but Nathan's also an endurance athlete. He's run, was it 41 marathons? 27. 27 marathons. In how many days? 27 days. In 27 days. 27 and he also uh, attempted the Spartathlon. So you ran, it was 155 kilometers straight, which is pretty impressive. And he's challenged himself with quite a few different endurance challenges. So we're going to go a bit into that and explore what drives Nathan as a person. So, should we start? Do you want to ask the first question, Dave? No, you can go ahead. <laughs> So Nathan, um, let's start maybe a little bit from the beginning of your story. Like growing up, would you say there was anything kind of formative in your life that impacted you and has resulted in you having quite a mindset of challenge and exploration in your life? Yes. Um, when I was four years old, uh, I was diagnosed uh, with asthma. Um, at the time, the medicine was such that if uh, an exercise, uh, sorry, uh, a trigger to uh, to the condition um, was predominant, you would obviously avoid it. And in my case, um, the uh, trigger for my asthma was uh, exercise and dust. And so the uh, thoughts at the time were: How can we avoid the dust in a country like Malta? And, and obviously, you know, as kids uh, want to be with their friends, they want to climb trees and, and play football and, and go camping. 
how is this going to affect the way I would live my life? And so therefore there was serious consideration to actually move from Malta to the UK. My mother is British, where the uh, obviously the perpetual rain there allows <laughs> for the dust <laughs> to be washed away. Um, so, so there was that option and therefore it started to become uh, a condition, a serious condition and a constraint to the way I wanted to live. And like I said, normal children want to be out there playing with their friends and I was here being told um, avoid exercise, avoid sports, avoid uh, triggering any, any attack. Um, my, uh, my friends at school who did have asthma, it is a common problem here in Malta because of the dust, had sick notes when it was PE time and they would sit on the side and watch. But my parents decided otherwise and they said, you know what, we think that we need to strengthen your lungs and we need to prepare you for, for this and we're going to sign you up to every single sport under the sun. <laughs> and so therefore at a young age I was doing all sorts. Um, I, I was given my medication, my little puffer to keep with me all the time. I had one in my sports bag, I had one with my grandparents, I had one with the PE teacher, just in case. But it doesn't stop me from doing what I wanted to do. Yes, I uh, did stretch myself and I did get attacks. But I also learned very early on how to recognize uh, what was happening inside of me and how uh, controlling asthma, uh, although it is an autoimmune uh, problem, can be managed much better if you can manage anxiety. Because anxiety makes, sits you on this vicious cycle and makes the, the condition worse. So from a very early age, I started to learn deep breathing. I started to learn uh, how to sense my body's condition how to, in a way, address sort of cortisol increasing. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but in a way I was practicing yoga, you know, at, at, at a very, very young age. Well, that's actually really amazing. Yeah. So, so I continued to do that because I really was getting into sports. I chose a sport that was indoors because it was creating least triggers, and that was basketball. Um, I loved it. It was why I got out of bed in the morning. I would train in the morning before school. I would train at school in the break, and I would train after school. And uh, it, it, it helped me because it allowed me to do something I was good at and gave me motivation. Um, but also it was a driver for me to continue my studies because my parents used the, uh, the time to train as my um, carrot or stick, depending <laughs> on whether I passed my exams or not. And so therefore my reason to pass my exams and study was to be able to uh, get to go to train and play. And so therefore I did well at school. So whereas most parents today will say, you know, when time of all levels, you need to curb the, the, the pastimes and the hobbies, for me it worked the opposite. It was a motivator um, to actually get my good results. Um, because I knew that if I didn't, I would have to compromise some of my basketball time. So I played well, I played successfully, I, I actually you know, was one of the first Northeast people to actually get paid to play, um, uh, not as a professional, but semi um, I played internationally for 12 years with the national team. I played with the Malta Falcons in the Italian league. So I was, you know, it, it, I was pretty good at it and it was something that I loved to do. Um, in the meantime, I took a physiotherapy degree at uh, university because I, I was tempted to do medicine. Um, I had ruled out vet, which was originally what I wanted to do because you had to go abroad to study. Uh, medicine opened every two years I was here to get going and I thought you know physiotherapy in my mind was really sports I, I do that so I, I got into that uh, course um, but soon into it I had a very serious problem with my knees I was uh, tackled during a basketball game and tore my cruciate ligaments my medial collateral and my meniscus which is basically you know, 
it's a typical skiing incident. Uh, it's the, one of the worst uh, injuries you can have to your knee. And at the time, the science uh, available showed that it would be a very, very long haul recovery. And uh, I decided to take a second opinion. I went to the Italian uh, Olympic Institute in Rome. And there they said, you know what, we were doing this new way of reconstruction and we'd like to, to suggest this to you. And so that I did my surgery there and I was back on court within six months, which was unheard of at the time. So again, another situation where I was told I can't play basketball anymore, to challenging that, finding alternatives and actually coming back to the sport I loved. About three years later, I uh, tore my cruciate again, another nasty tackle. Uh, this time, the local doctor, who was a friend of mine because I used to work at hospital uh, and refer patients, said, look, you know, we know you're hard-headed, we know you want to do sports, but the state of your knee at this point is that if you keep this up, you're not going to be able to, to do anything, you know, not alone, let alone basketball. Uh, so they said, you need to sort of curb, curb the effort that you're putting through this knee. And uh, I listened, I did the reconstruction anyway. And I started doing my physio, uh, my swimming, a little bit of cycling. They said, you know, take it easy on the running because otherwise you'll need a knee replacement by the age of 40. So I started doing a little bit. But I started missing the competition. And I decided that I was going to put those three rehabilitation protocols together and form a sport, triathlon. <laughs> uh, and I signed up for my first one and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I started to realize that I was overtaking people later in the in the race, which basically is my description of I've got a diesel engine rather than a petrol one. Uh, I, I, I have more endurance than I have speed. And so therefore I decided to sign up for longer and longer races. Eventually I did the Ironman triathlon, I've done a few of those so far, uh, because it suits my, my uh, temperament, it uh, suits my uh, mental stamina, which makes up for my lack of physical um, so I, I sort of slowly drifted into endurance sports. At the same time, I moved from running my clinics, which I had set up, uh, to a general management role in a hotel, and then eventually into uh, Ratsata Liberia, which eventually became Inspire. So I started to use these endurance challenges to raise funds for, for charity. And the more they were out there, the more they were they seem daunting to the general public, the more I raised awareness and the more I raised funds. So I basically started to stretch those limits uh, and, and trying to see what I could do more that would excite people and get them to follow. So we went through uh, a various, uh, various types of, of events. I like to keep it varied. So I went from these triathlons to running the Marathon de Sable, which is a 250k run across the desert, uh, self-supported with all you can carry on your back to running around Mont Blanc, which is uh, you know, the opposite side of things, freezing cold, uh, to various hundred milers, you know, these are 160k runs that happen dotted around the world, including the one on the Berlin Wall uh, in Dolomites. So it was always about, you know, what can I do more, where's the limit and, and that curiosity. Do you think, Nate, it struck me that you said, you know, when you were young, you had to learn how to be very connected to your physical body which I find very interesting because in our modern world, in a sense, we're becoming quite disconnected from ourselves. Like Even a lot of young children today have a lot of interaction with iPads, computers, and not so much time really feeling themselves. So do you think that this has really impacted your ability to take on these challenges at the end of the day? Uh, yes, 
not just in a physical sense, but also in a, in a business sense, um, in a relationship, an emotional sense, you need to be connected with your emotional state. Uh, it is clear that our the way we think sets us up for the way uh, that we behave, and the bridge to that is our emotional state. So if we are aware of it, then we can choose uh, to to be wayward with that emotion and let it steer us or be in control and, and decide how we want to live our lives. If I am upset by the things that people do and, and I let that condition me that I am living to their expectations, whereas if I take control and decide how I want to harness my own mental state, uh, then I can make decisions for myself. And so when you are making decisions for your business or making decisions for the relationships you are in, you need to have clarity of thought. And that means sifting out what is uh, an emotion, which is essentially a chemical running around your brain, uh, versus what is the real issue at hand and the problem that needs to be solved. And maybe maybe you can share sort of some of the your thought processes, let's say, when something like this does come up. How do you... Is it just a mental process where you're kind of trying to tease out how you really feel? or? Um, I think it starts with mindfulness. So I, I do practice it on a regular basis, but also it's something that has now become a, a habit uh, where I can sense uh, changes in my, in my state um, and I can reflect on that from an objective perspective so I don't get sucked into the emotion. And that allows me to actually make the right choices. Well, hopefully the right choices. I've made many mistakes too. Um, but what I find is that the mistakes I've made were often misjudgment because of an emotional tinge or filter. Was conditioning my, my, my thought process and it, it, it affects your clarity of thought. You know, you, you face situations where you have to make a decision and you just say, Well, you know, uh, I'm angry, so I'm going to act this way. Um, you don't necessarily go through that thought process, you're angry and you automatically act that way, which is not necessarily the best way. And uh, I think probably all the mistakes I've made that I feel uh, could have been done better were the ones where I didn't pull back and let the emotions take over. The ones that I did make uh, where I was in control but made it because of lack of information or uh, a lack of understanding, I don't feel bad about because those were mistakes I learned from. And so therefore the outcome of, of making mistakes um, conditions the, the, the ability for you to go and make more uh, and that's where you learn. You need to get out of your comfort zone because that's where you grow and if you're not comfortable being out of your comfort zone, then you're not going to grow. <laughs> so, well said. <laughs> I wanted to also just tap into and, and maybe just discuss the whole the, the whole mindfulness side because I find it really interesting how you know you've done some incredible challenges, uh, physical challenges over the past couple of years and. Um, you know, a lot of people do these these challenges, but I, I feel that they simply do them you know, from a, a physical angle. Um, you know, it's all about like pushing more and striving for more and getting fitter, and it's all about the time and and this that, and everything. And but I, I always felt with you ever since we, we we got to know each other, there was a whole other side to that. You know, it was it was a lot, uh, lot deeper. It, was, it wasn't just surface level. So so what what really got you in touch with, with that aspect, with the mind? Um, as a youngster, I was always the guy who wanted to win. Uh, I always pushed hard. It was always about being better than everybody else. 
Um, and I realized that it took a lot of effort and energy, but didn't necessarily leave me with a, uh, a, a good afterglow. Um, it was always winning and then saying, okay, who, who else am I going to beat? You know, and, and I slowly realized in my late 20s that that was a futile uh, waste of energy. And so therefore I decided to see if I could start to challenge that internally and start challenging myself. But then I needed to get some self-awareness. What, what, what were my limits? Uh, what was I good at? What were my weaknesses? And started to work on being uh, honest with myself about my limitations and, and, and sort of built curiosity. So it wasn't a hunger to be better. It was more a curiosity of what I could do. That's where it started. And so therefore, when people told me, you know, you can't run on a knee that's messed up, it wasn't a, I'm going to prove everybody wrong and I'm going to go out and I'm going to run a marathon. It was more of, hmm, okay, I wonder what makes people say that. Is it because of their limited knowledge or is there a truth in it? Let me go and see. And so there's many, been many instances where I've, I've had sort of mini awakenings in some of my challenges simply because I actually questioned what common knowledge was. So when I decided to run 27 marathons in 27 countries in 27 days, most people said, aside from the physical aspect, traveling would completely break down your, your body, you wouldn't get the right nutrition, it, it wouldn't work. And I didn't go out and say, right, I'm going to prove everybody wrong, I'm going to run 27 marathons. I went, hmm, okay, that's a logical reason why this might not work. I'm going to go and have a go and see what could really happen. And lo and behold, actually, you know, my resilience improved and over time, the last 10 marathons were the fast, fastest ones. You know, as time passed, I got faster, which is illogical from a context of physiology. But when you've got the right mindset, um, then you, you unlock potential that is just dormant. It took me 16 marathons to start getting into the rhythm. Uh, but that's when you unlock that, that potential. It's, it's at the limit that you open the last door. Um, otherwise, you, you, you never experience it. I remember in... Uh, in the, in the Martin de Sable, I was running on day four. Uh, I had run for about 15 hours, um, and I had expected to finish that particular stretch of the day in 10. So I had calculated for food for, for 10, and I ran for five hours um, in that heat, uh, way, way beyond what I, I should have. But the mental sort of strength of, okay, you're nearly there, keep pushing, you know, don't give up. Uh, took me to a state of extreme uh, hypoglycemia, which means I was very, very depleted. And at one point, I went blind. Um, I just, I, I couldn't see. My, I was so starved of sugars that my eyes didn't function. And I thought it was my head torch that had just sort of packed it in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, no, I can see sort of the faint light of the camp in the distance, and I'll eventually get there. And I, so at one point, I, I was tripping over myself, I took the spare batteries out, to change the head torch and, and it still didn't work. <laughs> Damn my luck! Even the even the batteries are dead, the spares. Uh, and eventually I got to camp and everything was sort of like all the lights were switched off and I was like, well, why, why is it all so dark? And the guy looked at me and said, what do you want about? I said, anyway, show me to my tent. And I sat down in my sleeping bag and I took out some some raisins just to try and sort of get some sugar and slowly ease into my my system. And within 30 seconds, it's like someone switched all the lights off. What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> And so therefore, you know, th this being at that limit is, is for me, each time, uh, an awakening to uh, how amazing our body is and, and how, how strong our mind can be to actually overtake, you know, when the body's saying that's enough. Um, another situation I was in, uh, uh, actually in, in, on the run in, 
in uh, the Sardinia challenge, uh, running across Corsica. It was hottest day in 20 years, you know, trust my luck. Um, got severely dehydrated, uh, my kidney stopped functioning. And at about 150k, I had to check in to a clinic to see what the hell was going on because I had been to the loo on the side of the road and uh, the color wasn't very uh, good. And I said, look, there's something happening here, we need to pay attention. And so when I went in to get my hydration, I knew exactly what I needed. Uh, I, uh, they took my blood to, to test it. It's normal procedure. And uh, after a while, the doctor came and I had had about you know, f- four bags of, of hydration, so I was relatively back to normal. And the doctor wouldn't let me leave, he wouldn't let me check out, because we've just had your blood uh, choice. And I said, okay, um, but I need to go. I'm perfectly fine, ready to go. I have to finish this, this thing. I have to swim the channel and, and cycle the length of Sardinia yet. And he said, no, no, you're not going anywhere. He said, because um, there's something wrong with your, your system. I said, okay, what does that mean? He said, look, um, the amount of toxins running around your body in a normal person would be, say, 100. I said, okay. He says, yours are 14,000. I don't know, that sounds bad. It's not just bad. It's that at 7,000, you usually sign up for a kidney replacement. And at 10,000, you're in a coma. So you should be dead. <laughs> I said, well, I'm clearly not. Uh, and so therefore, is there something wrong with your charts? And he got very upset. But again, that's the reality. His numbers were based on norms, based on previous observation. Now he has a new chart, uh, which goes up to 14,000. Because this is how we discover, this is how we know where the limits are, by pushing them further and further and acknowledging them and testing them and saying, okay, maybe it is possible to be at this new space. Um, you know, so. Do you think, Nathan, there's something uh, that helps you push your limits? Because obviously all of us in our life get faced with limits and sometimes we just say, nah, nah, <laughs> not yeah. today, tomorrow. <laughs> But then sometimes, or in some people, there's just this desire and this drive that says, no, I'm not going to accept that limit, I'm going to give it a go. I think it's, it's you know, as David was saying before, it, for me it's a curiosity. It's not a, it's not a I, there's, there's a bar and I want to raise it, or there's a bar and I want to beat it. I mean, a lot of the stuff I've done has, has been done by other people who are far fitter and stronger than me. Uh, for me, it's about can an average guy who has to run a business and work 14 hours a day still fit in time to go and do extreme sports when other people are saying it's impossible because they don't have the time to even do some exercise. No, so for me, it's about, it's about that curiosity. Um, it's about doing what I enjoy doing. Uh, raising funds gives me, gives me the satisfaction. So when I change, you know, attach it to charity, even, even more motivation comes through. Um, but I think, you know, as much as there is a level of, of hard-headedness um, I think it's more about you know, wondering what what that might feel like when you're when you're doing that when you're doing that thing whatever it is that you're, you're so what would you tell yourself I'm sure you've had moments on all of your challenges where that sort of drive to give up is challenging you yes. you know you're saying like oh I can't do it or I don't want to do it or you know, obviously there's some kind of mental dialogue going on there where you're persuading yourself to carry on. <laughs> what's, what's going on in that conversation? Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business term I use when I'm coaching executives and it's called reframing. So what, what you do is you try and step away from the feeling um, to be able to take an objective decision. So let, let me put that into perspective. Um, 
all the, the biggest limiter to human performance is the voice in our heads. Whether that's quitting the day job and starting that dream business you wanted to do, uh, whether it's uh, going off and, and, and climbing Everest, it's the little voice in your head that says you can't. That is the biggest limiter. It's not the funds, it's not the resources, it's not uh, uh, skills, it's self-belief. And so therefore, when, you, when I understand that firmly, and I don't just pay to service, then I can objectively say, okay, what's going on here? Why am I tempted to quit? Why is the voice in my head saying quit getting louder? And then I pay heed to it by doing an assessment. And this is where the mindfulness comes in. So, am I pushing myself that I'm going to hurt myself? Is there a physiological problem here? Checklist, okay, seems to be fine. So therefore, what is it? Is it my emotional state? Are the, uh, are the chemicals in my brain, you know, the hormones? Is it the, the cortisol? Is it, is it the, the toxins going around my body, clouding my judgment? What is it? And that allows me to actually make the right judgment call. I was running the, uh, the UTMB, which is the Ultra Trainer One Block, the second time, and I slid on ice and I wrenched my knee. And the first part of me said, okay, you know, it's probably just a, a twist, I'll, I'll, I'll push through. By the time I got to 80k, my knee was so swollen that I couldn't bend it. And I was only halfway. And I just said, okay, I don't want to quit, but it would be foolish not to. I would be finishing it, and I probably could have finished it, even on my hands and knees, but I would have made so much damage, I would have spent months recovering um, and not doing the sports I enjoy doing. So, as much as the emotion to me there was saying, go on, push it on, you know, don't, don't be a weak link, etc., etc., I needed to be objective and say, you know what, this is not good for me. So, it's sometimes even the reverse, the voice telling you to continue, when you have to be able to take control and say, no, this is foolish. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I think that leads quite next into maybe a bit of a discussion around failure. Itself. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. And I think because Yaz and I were, were discussing before we, we went on air how you know I was I was there with with Nathan um, during his his ultramed, which uh, was three three years ago. Three years ago. Three years ago, and basically, um, if I could just run through the ultramed, it was this amazing challenge which was uh, running the length of Corsica and then swimming the, um, the straits and then cycling down um, all of Sardinia and I, and I was uh, invited by Nathan to document the whole um, journey so I spent a couple of days in this van and you know it was, it was amazing I mean we were kind of always making sure that he had what he wanted and planning and it was you know this whole adventure uh, in and of itself but what, what was what I found to be so interesting was before we set off and it was kind of the, the time when I really started to get to know you and, and we used to hang out and you know I, I had this image in my eyes of this guy kind of doing all these amazing things and you know like one after the other the 27 marathons marathon the sub you know, the list kind of goes on. But when I saw you in that state, I remember, you know, we were in Corsica and, and, and you know, you were severely dehydrated. Um, it was quite, quite interesting because 
there, there was a, a certain uh, scenario where Nathan was, I think it was around two in the morning and, you know, you were on your hands and knees on the side of the road and everyone around him was like panicking and, and kind of, you know, tearing their hair out, not knowing what to do and, and you were just so calm. And, and, and I remember thinking, this guy deep down inside knows somehow, just somehow, he's going to, to get through it. And then I remember speaking to people the day after and, and, and you know, they were just seeing the whole turn of events as a kind of complete failure because things kind of didn't work, go, go according to plan. So I wanted to maybe, if we could maybe go into that and, and, and um, if you could discuss the, the, the concept of failure and how you, how you feel, you know, what you feel you've, you've learned from it and also what, what exactly is failure for you? Hmm. Interesting. I think failure is, is, is when we are not objective or hard-headed about um, living up to our egos. So in this example, you know, I had committed to do this event non-stop uh, and therefore it required me to continue and proceed um, without rest. And, and so therefore anything short of that would, would be perceived as failure because that was the target. Whereas for me, uh, being mindful of a situation and making the best out of it means that you can sometimes reset targets. Now one might argue, well, you, you're lowering the bar. Um, but when all those constraints come into play and all the unpredictabilities come into play and you set a new target, it's a fresh target. It's not lesser than the previous one. And so for me, Finishing was important. Finishing non-stop would have been great. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to get the job done. And I wanted to see if I could do this and if it could be done. And so therefore, as much as people, and you know, to a certain extent, I will admit that it, was a, it wasn't the, the right result because we wanted to do this non-stop. Getting to tell out at the bottom of Sardinia two days later was still an achievement. And not, not for anybody's sake, but, but for the fact that we raised... 60,000 euros um, and uh, the people that stuck around really showed me that they they cared because you know as you know the, the group divided up um, and some people stuck around some people went home and uh, and that showed me that you know the people who stuck around were really people who who I can trust and who I, I believe in and so therefore there is a, for me a, a, an even more powerful victory there of sussing out uh, my own uh, strengths and limitations uh, but understanding more about um, how, how life is unpredictable and, and sometimes you just need to change, change parameters. Um, so for me, failure is, is, is not doing that. Failure is not trying. Uh, failure is saying, oh, that's what it is, there's nothing I can do about it, and therefore I give up before I even start. Um, you know, the example I gave earlier where I raised my knee, I could say, yeah, well, I, I failed to finish the race. Or I could say I managed, you know, four hours <laughs> on, a, on a buggered knee. <laughs> so, you know, it's just the perspective that you have uh, that dictates whether something is a success or a failure. And as you rightly said, obviously our ego plays a big part because sometimes our ego gets a bit attached, especially 
kind of what you did. You know, there's a lot of eyes on you. You've said publicly that you're going to do this. So in a way, it's like that ego. It's much harder to fail publicly than fail privately. <laughs> and that's if you care about ego. Yeah. Um, so you know, people who don't know me will think that I have a, a big ego um, because I, I go out there and I commit to things that I'm going to do. I could easily quietly say, "Well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to go and do it." And then after, I'll say, "Look, I did this." And that's not sticking your neck out beforehand, and uh, that's that's fine. Um, you know, when I ran the the Spartathlon, uh, I went there with zero training. You know, the, the the wise thing to do would have been not tell anybody I was going, got out there, and if I was successful, then write home and say, ah, look, I've just finished the, the Spartathlon. And if I failed, nobody would know better. But that's not how you raise funds. You raise funds by going out there and saying, I'm going to stick my neck out. I haven't had time to train for this. I was a bit foolish in going to try, to be honest. Um, but I wanted to know how far I could get. And so for me, that again wasn't a failure. If you measure it by the completion of the, of the race, then yes, it was a failure. I didn't get to the finish line. But I learned a lot. I learned that you can't wing these things. Uh, I learned that the two people who, who were with me, uh, again, were people that were happy to suffer with me through that ordeal. Um, and I've got a very, very, you know, two very, very strong friendships out of Experience. And you also ran 155k, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've done longer, so you know, yeah. by that standard, it's 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 not the, the furthest I've run. Yeah. Um, but it's about and it's interesting in, in that there's the distance, and then there's the time, and then there's the conditions. And these are all variables. Don't people don't necessarily understand that? I mean, I've run 100 milers, and my longest non-stop run was 28 hours, but I've done that distance in 19, uh, just because the terrain is different. So running 20, 28 hours is a, a, a very long time to deal with the voice in your head. <laughs> and so therefore I grew a lot from that experience. Amazing. Well, sure. And I, I think also the, the, the whole concept of failure, I think sometimes it tends to get, we tend to confuse it between um, thinking about failure as in the, the journey versus the destination. You know, we so often think that it's ultimately the destination which is going to, um, like success equals reaching a certain point when it's actually, it's the day-to-day committing to something and showing up and just enjoying the journey. Uh, and that in and of itself is is, is the success. Um, I think, you know, people so often uh, get so caught up and afraid by just simply starting Um and also just, you know, see the end result. You know, it's like, um, you know, you're about to climb a mountain and, and, you know, you're so fixated on the summit, you don't see that you actually have to climb, you know, the whole route all the way up, basically. Yes. But it's, you know, with or Confucius, the journey, you know, a thousand mile journey starts with a single step. You know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's the starting, it's the committing to start, it's, it's the doing after you've decided that is the most important thing. I think, I think destinations are important in that they should give us inspiration. You know, when you decided you were going to cycle across Australia, you didn't cycle and say, well, I'll start and then I'll see where I get to until I get to the other side. I want to get to the other side. Uh, you know, that's fine. But, but the growth came from the journey. Completely. And so therefore, both are important. Um, but often what happens is that we are not mindful of the journey. We're always so focused on the destination that we get to the destination if we do and we haven't really taken much out of it except the fact that we got to the finish line. And then what do we do? 
we find a other one. <laughs> or we feel like we're so great and we're the best yeah. best thing on this planet. <laughs> yeah, but people who do this sort of stuff aren't aren't happy with doing that something once. Mm. Nate, can we maybe go a bit more into this concept of the ego? I think yeah. it's really interesting. I don't know if you work with this in the executive coaching that you do because I'm very interested obviously in business and conscious business and leadership and I think on a business setting it's kind of the same principle where if your decisions get clouded by your ego um, you can actually end up taking a lot of wrong decisions and it's funny to me but even on a business level you kind of have to be playing with that voice in your head and exactly as you said really deciphering why you're thinking certain things and kind of clearing out the rubbish before you take a decision yes how do you help people to embark on this process because for a lot of people it's quite an alien thing <laughs> well it starts with self-awareness um, people need to understand that coaching is useful to them and that they can get support in, in progressing and navigating through this this journey of, of self-awareness um, and, and then understanding you know how to step away from yourself step away from your ego and make the right objective decisions I think the starting point is therefore the will to want to to change or take hold of it there is a very interesting uh, science uh, around flow uh, which I use a lot in coaching um, flow is um, basically it's a state of ultimate performance it's a place where you are at your best where everything is buzzing where you're in the zone and when you are in that place the uh, release of um, the, the chemicals in your brain like dopamine uh, quiet your ego uh, you get a sense of hyperfrontality you, you become immersed within that moment and you forget about yourself externally as an identity and so therefore high performers are people who get into that flow state often and which means that the real truly uh, you know, people who are high performance and always or often in flow have low egos. They are people who disregard the ego because the ego gets in the way. The ego makes them make bad decisions. If you are a, a, an adrenaline junkie, so-called, which is a wrong... I mean, people listening will know what I mean by that, but it's not, it's not the right terminology. The people who jump out of planes with parachutes and wingsuits or, or climb, you know... Uh, signs of, of El Capitan um, these people don't have egos they can't have egos because if they had an ego then they're not climbing the wall they're climbing the imaginary self and then there's no one to beat but what's in their head and so therefore they lose objectivity and they start making mistakes and that's when they die because people who are doing adventure sports live on an edge and you can't afford to have a voice in your head you know, saying, oh, you're going to look stupid if you fall, or, you know, that this was a bad idea. You, you need to be there in the zone, focused, and that voice needs to be quiet. And so flow is, is a great way to get past the ego and get into high performance. It's, a, it's the state of hyperfrontality, and, and it, it requires triggers. Uh, we can create triggers around the way we do business uh, that allow us to get into flow more often. We can create triggers in how we work with teams for us to get group flow. Um, there are creative triggers that will allow us to get flow into creativity. And, the, and we can set these up. Um, there's a lot of science behind it that shows us how to do that. Um, we talk about the uh, skills to challenge ratio and how this needs to be fine-tuned. And therefore, going out of our comfort zone just too far 
will release cortisol instead of norepinephrine and dopamine. So we, we need to be careful of how we make decisions for us to stretch to be able to get uh, into that state. It also means that we can't stay in our comfort zone because that's where you don't get flow. <laughs> and therefore, having, having an understanding where that limit is, is important. And you have to go out and, and nudge it. Not shift it completely, but nudge it. And so for and for the kind of for the everyday individual listening to this, what kind of you know day to day steps do you feel they could take to slowly get to this state? So um, the model I, I use um, is it's it's called the Fire model, and the Fire model is it's an acronym F I R E. Uh, F stands for uh, flow, so that means that you should do things that make you feel uh, excited. Um, Challenged, a little bit scared, but not too scared, on a regular basis. Because that releases the right neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, for you to get into into flow. So doing things you're good at, but that challenge you, uh, is the first part. I is for impact. Impact is about altruism. It's about Doing things, whereas flow is for yourself and the great feeling you get when you are in flow, impact is about making a difference to others or people around you uh, or the environment or something that is selfless. There is no personal gain. And this balance between the the personal benefit of being in flow and the impact uh, to others gives us uh, a sense that we are um, sort of well balanced. R is about uh, responsibility. And this is about accepting roles with full responsibility or not at all. So it's about commitment. Um, if I've decided this is what I'm going to do, then I'm going to do it to the best of my abilities. And I'm going to dedicate the right time and effort into it. That means I don't multitask. It means I don't bite off too much more than I can chew. It means that I don't say yes to things I know I might fail to deliver, especially if other people are relying on me for them. And that allows me to make sure that the stuff I'm doing, I'm focusing on, I'm getting better at, and I'm getting more flow and making more of an impact. And the last thing is the E, which is excellence. And that's really the principle about, of, doing, of being better tomorrow at what it is I'm doing today. So whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it's doing exercise, whether it's learning to play a musical instrument, whether it's doing my studies, whether it's the job I've got or the business I own, can I be better at what that is tomorrow than today? So if I have another podcast tomorrow, can I do it better than this one? Uh, if I'm giving a speaking engagement, can I do it better than the last time I was on stage? And that's, that gives me purpose to actually continuously improve. And so when I have my F-I-R-E all done, uh, I feel fulfilled. The day is a good day, and uh, and it's going to get me out of bed the next morning. Beautiful. I'm going to remember this one. <laughs> <laughs> and as you were thinking, as you were speaking, I was thinking how you know an acronym like this is not just relevant to your craft or your hobby, but also just to your general life, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others. I think. Sometimes our relationship with others is something we just expect to be okay, but we don't really bring the same work ethic we bring into our projects, into relationship with our partners, spouse, children, family members. So is, uh, is this something that you is, is important to you and that you consciously work towards? Yes, um, not just because it's 
a good belief to have, but because it's proven scientifically to enhance our own individual performance. Um, when we look at uh, happiness from a scientific perspective, there are as many social triggers that are important as there are personal ones. And therefore, if we do not have the right ingredients into our mix, we are not going to have that happiness, which many of us strive for. How we define happiness is very subjective, but the ingredients of that are very, very similar. And I would say at least half of those ingredients are social. For sure. Um, is it something that you bring certain techniques towards, or is it just a question of time and attention into these other aspects of your life? I think it needs to become second nature. I think it starts with an acknowledgement that we need to put the effort in. Um, you know, if, if it's scheduling it in your diary to do 10 minutes of mindfulness and, and set a reminder to do so, fine, until it becomes a habit. But then eventually what you want to do is uh, infiltrate this way of being into the, everything that you do. And, uh, you know, for me it's about doing making less mistakes in, in, in that. Uh, as, I, as I grow older and mature, for me it's about being more consistent in, in the practices rather than just do them because it's time to do them. And so therefore what I've realized is that people, and this is from feedback from people, is that I have changed my, my behavior, I have changed, um, I'm much more stable, I am uh, much more in tune with my, my state, uh, I seem calmer, um, and so these are just external manifestations of what's going on inside. Um, it's also been very useful to get less stress because I now am very clear about what I can control, what I can influence, and what I need to let go, and that allows me to actually sleep well at night. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a journey that never ends. It's always about continuous improvement. And, you know, for me, it's catching myself doing something which I say, oh yeah, I could have I could have done this better next time. I'll, I'll make sure I I improve. And do you think what I find related to performance is a lot of the time our belief about ourselves and our capabilities are very much impacted by how we feel other people perceive us. Obviously from a young age our parents are the ones that impact us most but also friends, peers and society in general in a way sets the limit of what we think that we're capable of. Um, do you agree? I mean, is this something that you deal with a lot with the people that you coach, trying to kind of decipher what we really feel about ourselves that's our own, as opposed to what comes from the outside? Yes. And especially in today's world, you know, big social media, there's a lot of role models out there where the image of the role model is quite a one-sided, picture-perfect, photoshopped <laughs> role model, which obviously impacts... Uh, people's self-belief and their self-confidence because they're measuring themselves to these kind of figures. Hmm. I, I think so. I think, you know, today it's social media, before it was books um, or stories around the campfire. You know, we, we always have these stories of inspirational people. Um, the danger is to look at just one trait of theirs and focus on that and forget that they also have their flaws. And so therefore, if we can look at the great leadership qualities of Winston Churchill, but also the uh, the collaboration and empathy of uh, of Gandhi, 
then, then that's fine. What, what's wrong with that? You know, to take the best out of people and try and package them into one and have that aspiration is a good thing. I think we need to distance ourselves from maybe the more materialistic stuff, which is you know the wealth and the fancy car and the house and that sort of stuff, because that's not necessarily meaningful. It doesn't lead to happiness. Um, but I, I, I have no I have no issue with people aspiring to be uh, who they think is 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 better than them. Um, the thing is, though, that it can be counterproductive when they benchmark themselves on the opinion of others. And this is, you know, going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and leading to self-actualization. Uh, people who are happy within themselves are the happiest people. Uh, people who are happy only when they are given um, feedback uh, or praise then live their life conditioned by what other people think of them and therefore spend their time trying to prove themselves to others. Which is a huge waste of energy and a pity. So unless you're happy with yourself, you're never going to be happy. It sounds sounds very true, but very, to be honest, very scary at the same time because I truly feel that the, a lot of people do live on that aspect, which is you know constantly disconnected from themselves and trying to please others all the time. And how, so, how do you feel they could really? You know, scrape through all of that and look at things a bit deeper and really see actually why am I doing this and what am I getting out of it what does it actually mean to me well I think when you're looking at it from our side of the fence David it's easy to say well you know why doesn't this guy just decide to take control and, and do something about the particular situation but that's because we're seeing it from, from this side of the fence usually it takes a, an awakening uh, for people to to make just drastic changes, to, to pull themselves up or pull themselves up from their hair and sort of get themselves sorted out. Um, sometimes people are lucky to have people around them that that guide them and that incentivize them to to, to, to find another way uh, to live their lives. Sometimes it's a life-changing moment, uh, a sense of desperation where you're at the bottom and the only way <laughs> is, is up. Um, I mean, it, I think, you know, horses for courses. For, for some people, it's going to be them just being fed up with the way that they're living their life and just saying, you know, I'm going to start exploring what other options there are. And hopefully they come across positive options rather than the route of mind-bending drugs and, and, and other alternatives. Um, people who do that are, are unhappy with their situation and want to change it. They have a fork in the road and they have a choice. Hopefully there are enough podcasts like this out there that people listen to and, and, and books to read that help people make the right choices. Yeah, I think for our generation, I mean, the, the drug taking is quite an issue. Um, it's very, very common. And for me, I've had enough experiences of getting high naturally through sports, through meditation, through traveling and, and just being connected to my own passion to have that motivation not to take drugs and not to kind of go down that route. But I think for a lot of young people, until you experience that, you're kind of stuck in this way of entertainment and enjoyment. And it's very hard to step away from because you haven't experienced what you're going to get from, you know, stepping that direction. So, I mean, I think sports is obviously, and exercise is, is one of the quickest ways for people to experience that happiness from the inside. Um, the dopamine. <laughs> yes. 
but it's not as fast as popping a pin. So yeah. <laughs> this is where character and discipline uh, are necessary. Um, and I think the issue of drugs is, is, I mean, I'm no expert, but the issue of drugs is interesting because often there are, I would say, dare I say, good reasons to try drugs in the sense that it's trying to get into an altered state of consciousness. And, and to a certain extent, I can understand that. But doing it to escape uh, the drudgery of their life is, is a totally different reason. Um, and that's, that's a dangerous one. Yeah. In a way, we're sort of hardwired to seek these experiences which expand your consciousness and help you grow. And, and me and Dave are both very interested in the hero's journey and this idea of an initiation um, where you kind of undergo a challenge so great that it really brings that character out from within you. And it's something that tribes and smaller communities, it was a massive part of how they organized their society because they couldn't afford to have members of the community who were childish and selfish. Um, but it's something that in today's world, you know, there are people like Dave who just decide to self-initiate and ride 4,000 miles. <laughs> but generally as a society, we don't really have these structures that allow people to have these opportunities. So you kind of have to be lucky and spontaneously have an awakening or a mentor or a, or a great challenge come into your life from outside to give you that experience. Yes, sometimes you need that trigger. I would be cautious about suggesting that um, an initiation needs to be uh, something that is physical. Um, there are some um, great minds, self-actualized people, you know, who are musicians, who are um, deep thinkers. You know, yes, there are hard chargers, maybe like like I was. I don't even think I'm a hard charger anymore. But maybe David and a few of other people we know who are who get a buzz out of you know jumping off a high cliff or going breaking down a, a mountain bike route. Um, but there are other ways, yeah, you know, and I think true. awakening is something that we shouldn't box in as uh, some sort of, I don't know, metaphysical sort of journey to, to, to say or trigger to, to try and activate it's sort of a switch. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it just happens as a process. There's so many different traumas and challenges that come in our life. But yeah, the physical aspect is just one which you can choose if, if you so wish to. Yes, absolutely. No, for sure. I mean, I, mean, I, I couldn't agree more. For me, it was, it was actually quite natural in a way because I was always very, very sporty like you from a, from a very young age. And um, it may sound strange, but it, it was kind of normal for me to, to, to go on the sports, you know, challenges. It was more uh, the, the, the mental aspect that I had never explored before. Um, so, in fact, when, when people, you know, kind of ask me, like, why did you do that? Or, like, you know, that's crazy or whatever. And honestly, deep down inside, it, it kind of felt perfectly normal. And, and that is pretty much because, like, I'm sure you, with, with so many of the amazing challenges you've done, you connected with yourself you really reckoned with yourself and you you just went through with what you really felt you you could do you needed to do um, and I couldn't agree more that you know for other people it's finding that through music it's finding that through meditation art cooking whatever um, 
or even just like you know family member passing away or a difficult situation an injury or whatever it may be so many forms of that challenge <laughs> yes uh, I think yeah there is an element here for me that, that sort of it wasn't mentioned by name but it's the ability it's, it's the resilience to to deal with these these traumas um, and resilience takes practice the more you practice getting out of your comfort zone, the more resilience you build, and the more your ability to get to pick yourself up after you get knocked down when these things happen. But you have to you have to take the risk. You have to be out there. Definitely, and I think you know another thing you mentioned is you know resilience, and that I think it'll be interesting if we could just hone in on that for a second, because like I think in our society nowadays and um, the kind of young generation, we're so um, used to, I feel, and obsessed with quick wins and like hacking your way through to kind of uh, the excellence. excellence, the result, you know, like overnight six pack abs <laughs> or like, you know, get your million dollar business, you know, flipped over in like a week or, you know, it's, it's, it's all about more, 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 but now, 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 now it's, it's everything kind of in the here and now. Whilst you know, I really feel that um, you know things which are really worthwhile and worth kind of um, striving for are the things which a are you know take time and b are the ones which really take you through a whole roller coaster of events. And I wonder if, if maybe that's something you could go into in terms of you know it's interesting how you went from basketball, which is you know a team and a team sport which is extremely quick. You know it's like running up and down points it's over in like 60 minutes or maybe a bit less yeah. and suddenly you know or, or kind of gradually you go to um, you know doing these things which I know as in I, you know, through the Ultraman that you did and you know it took a lot of planning a lot of preparation and also the event in itself took a long time mm-hmm. so how do you feel that uh, what did you learn from that um, I think planning is an interesting thing because planning for me gives peace of mind. Um, when I the, the biggest challenge I organized, I obviously organized the Ultraman, but, but the biggest one was 27 marathons in 27 countries. The logistics of getting from one country to the other after running a marathon with very little sleep to be able to be on the start line the next morning at half past seven took, uh, you know, was a nightmare. Um, and we did it on a shoestring budget and, and it worked. Um, but having the plan allows you to actually go out there and focus on what you've got to do without worrying. And the great metaphor for me is when you're running the, the Marathon de Sable, because you are expected to carry all you will need for that week in your backpack. What you've forgotten is not going to be there, because you can't stop and buy something from a shop in the middle of the Sahara <laughs> Basin. And so therefore, this meticulousness and planning gives you the peace of mind to just get to the desert and say, okay, now I just have to run. There's useless worrying whether I packed enough food or whether I packed enough this or that, because this is what I've got. And so that, that, that ability to plan well allows you to have the peace of mind to act then uh, with full-on uh, immersion and focus. Now, what resilience comes in is when, despite your efforts to plan, the inevitable happens. Uh, things don't go to it to what you expected, your planning may have been a little bit faulty or didn't look at various scenarios, or simply the unpredictability. 
of the very hot day in Corsica where I just couldn't, couldn't absorb enough liquids. Um, so the resilience there is, 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 where you, is what you need to be able to go despite, uh, you know, beep happening. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that comes through practice. There is no other way to build resilience than to actually go through it, go through the discomfort and the pain of being out of your comfort zone. There's no other way. You can't bite off the shelf, you can't learn it in a lesson. Resilience needs practice. There's also something that kind of keeps you in that practice because it's, it's not an easy thing, obviously, to build resilience. It's painful. Well, it's so painful. obviously it's there's painful. something that makes you keep doing it. <laughs> it's painful during. Yeah. Um, but the dopamine kick after is great. Yeah. And don't forget, the more, the more out of your comfort zone you are, the, the greater the dopamine kick and the, the afterglow of it. So there's always, there's always that uh, part of the air feeling when you cross the finish line. So in a sense, you could, you could say that once you kind of get connected to this state of flow, that state of flow itself drives you to keep pushing past these, these painful points. Dopamine is an opiate. It's one of the most powerful addictive drugs that exists. And microdosing yourself on a regular basis gets you pretty hooked. Um, but you're doing it because you're creating your own. Yeah. You're not taking it through a syringe. So the world's healthiest okay. addiction. <laughs> Amazing. I think we'll maybe draw to a close there. Nathan, I usually uh, end the podcast by asking people just, you know, to share a couple more sentences uh, around the question of what does living a nourished life mean to you? Of course, we've touched on a lot of elements within the show, but if you just have any parting thoughts on that note. I think it's going back to the, the fire model. It's, it's, for me, feeling fulfilled, looking, looking back at the end of the day and saying today was a good day, means that I've got some flow, I've made an impact, uh, I've answered to my roles with responsibility and I've done something that has enhanced my abilities to become better beautiful I was listening uh, recently to this guy who was talking about the difference between happiness and fulfillment and how happiness is almost a flash in the pan um, but fulfillment such a deeper grounded sense of well-being and it's, I think it's a very beautiful way actually to think about our joy of our life <laughs> yeah and if you want to know more if you go onto the upyourlevel.com website there's plenty of information yeah fantastic thank you so much for sharing your time with us Nathan I'm sure some people will be really inspired to hear your message and all of the wisdom that you shared so very grateful for you taking the time and thank you to you too Dave for your always insightful questions um I mentioned in the beginning that Dave is going to be co-hosting some of these podcasts with me and also interviewing um, people on his own. Uh, we both share this desire to bring these stories, which are very connected to the grasshopper philosophy, beyond just the food we eat, but the choices that we make, the thoughts that we think, and the way we relate to others and the world. So I hope you've enjoyed this, and if you have any suggestions of different people for us to interview or different questions you'd like us to ask them then we'd love to hear from you thank you very much see you again soon
holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!